So we've been making comments for five years now. That's over 100 episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hey, Supriya, what's good? Everything and nothing all at once. Well, you got to help me narrow it down. We got to do a show today. So what do you want to talk about? Well, I personally would like to have a little bit of a rant about the conservative leadership race. I really want to talk about those Panama Papers. They've been making headlines all over the place, and I can't really wrap my head around a lot of it. Uh, No, me neither. I, by the way, also have a rant. It's rant week. There's this really serious and poorly reported on series of torture cases in Canada. And I really, really want to talk about what the liberals are saying today on torture, which is like the opposite of what they were saying only a little while ago on torture. A government flip-flopping? That is the term, like a fish out of water. I'm Desmond Cole. I'm Supriya Devetti. And this is Canada Land Comments. This episode of Canadaland Commons is supported by Audible.com. If you go to audibletrial.com slash Canadaland right now, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. I love Audible, and I actually want to try it for a book that everybody says they've read, and I don't really believe them. Um, so I'm going to try <laughs> and, and read this book and get down to it. And it's Freakonomics because it's on there. You know, it's one of those books that nobody could really shut up about it when it came out. And I feel like uh, I've left out of the zeitgeist by not having read it. The zeitgeist, I wow. like that. Word of day toilet paper. I'm sure everybody out there knows that Audible has over 180,000 audiobooks to choose from. It is the largest online audiobook collection. And if you go there today to audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand, you can get a free audiobook and a 30-day free trial. So once again, that's audibletrial.com slash CanadaLand. All right, Supriya, I know you've had your eyes on the conservative leadership race, which is kind of just getting started in earnest. A couple of candidates are starting to put their names forward as wanting to be the next conservative leader. Of course, Rona Ambrose is the interim leader. Why is this interesting to you? It's extremely interesting. I mean, think about it. Stephen Harper was the only leader that we've known under a united right. And I just think it's incredibly fascinating. There are so many different factions within the Canadian conservative movement. There's social conservatives. There are libertarians. There are people that are fiscally conservative but just don't care about anything else, you know, and that's why they vote conservative. So I just find this extremely fascinating. And when you're talking about the two candidates that have come forward already. That's um, uh, Kelly Leach yeah. and Maxime Bernier has Ex- just uh, yeah, came e- forward too. Exactly. Um, so Kelly Leach is interesting to me. Dr. Leach, of course, is a pediatric 
pediatric surgeon. And I'm always in favor of people that have outside life experience, you know what I mean, and then become politicians. So I think that's great. She is, however, pro-life, uh, and she came out as pro-life. So I think that kind of hurts her in terms of a general election and trying to get Canadians under that banner. And of course, she was one of the two politicians in this last federal election who introduced the barbaric cultural practices tip line. And I'm not saying that it's insurmountable for her to overcome that. But for most people, that's what they associate with Kelly Leach at this point. Yeah, this whole uh, announcement that came out kind of during the late stages of the conservative campaign around this idea that you would have a snitch line. And if you saw your neighbors doing something that amounted your to- Your brown neighbors. Let's yes, get, your, yeah. your brown yeah. neighbors <laughs> doing something that amounted to a cultural barbaric practice, you could call a snitch line to report them. You wouldn't call the police who are, I guess, supposed to deal with criminal things. You would call this snitch line and said, that was- a terrible moment in the federal election campaign. And now that she has put her name forward for leader, I'm not sure how she'll avoid this coming up again. It's going to come up and she's going to be asked about it. Yeah, that's fair enough. But, you know, she doesn't need the support of you or I. She needs support of party members. And I'm not sure that for the demographic that she's courting currently, it's an insurmountable obstacle by any stretch. And then, you know, Maxime Bernier is interesting in his own right because he is a libertarian and he, you know, has floated the idea already of perhaps being on board with marijuana legalization. And he <gasps> and he's a self-avowed fiscal conservative without really buying into social conservatism. Um, and the Quebec caucus, of course, is increasingly important because they've increased seats there from five seats to now 12 seats. And I just think it's really interesting that there's going to be an actual libertarian, supposedly, in the race and on the right. And we haven't really seen that. Um, the other really interesting thing that happened recently was that Deepak Obrai, who is a MP out in Calgary, said that he fears that the Conservative Party is becoming too elitist and has the perception of being whites only. He, he fears that happening now. Canada in general is a pretty white elite place. I mean, like, where has anyone been who doesn't think that? But if he's talking specifically about the Conservative Party, I thought that that was where white elites went to die. Yeah, okay, point taken. But, you know, to be fair, in 2011, the Conservatives rode their way to a majority largely because of the new Canadian visible minority vote, specifically in swing ridings like in the GTA, Greater Montreal, Greater Vancouver area, and they did quite well. And so the thing that's now being floated around uh, is that Deepak Oberoi himself may, in fact, run for leader, which would be somewhat precedent-setting as, you know, an, an older Indian man running for leader of a party that he just claimed to be himself for whites only. So I think that dynamic is, is really one to watch, although it should be noted that he hasn't made any official announcement. These are all just been a little bit of cagey, non-confirmations, you know, kind of like, oh, I'm not saying I'm not running. It's, it's going to be open. I think that'll be really interesting. It'll be a, a great dynamic. And we have to ask ourselves this broader question if that would end up bringing a lot of visible minority votes and new Canadians and, and, and South Asian votes back into the conservative fold. And now I'm not saying that brown people are going to vote for a party just because there's a brown guy at the helm of it. But we often forget and we like to gloss over, I feel like, that social conservatism is alive and well in new Canadian demographics and, you know, is still quite omnipresent in the South Asian community. So I feel like there's a lot that they have in common with conservatives. And uh, let's see how this plays out. But, you know, we should keep our eye on that. So does let's switch gears a little bit um, and focus on something that the liberals are doing that are really grinding your gears right now because they are apparently, you know, quite evidently flip flopping on victims of torture. 
Yes, Sapria, this is basically the definition of a flip-flop, and it comes on a really grave issue, which has such serious consequences for the folks who are involved. Three men, Abdullah Al-Maki, Ahmed El-Mati, and Muayyad Nordin, were all in Canada as residents and traveled overseas to Syria and Egypt. And while they were overseas, uh, CSIS, our spy agency, actually gave information to governments overseas and helped to have these men captured. And then they were tortured, all three of them. So this is not in dispute anymore. This happened several years ago. And there have been reports and inquests into this by Canada's government and by judges. And so we know that these three men were tortured overseas. And we know that our spy agency was involved in helping to make that happen. And this happened under conservative rule. Correct. When the liberals were in opposition during conservative rule, they found out about all of this and said, this is horrible. These three men, Al-Maki, Al-Mati, and Nuruddin, they need to be apologized to for our role in them being tortured, and they need to be financially compensated for the injuries that they and their families have had to suffer. In the few months now since the liberals have taken power, they have completely reversed their decision. Now they say, no compensation for three torture victims in Canada. Wow. No apology. But even more than that, they're saying that they want to protect the CSIS sources that led to these men being tortured. So they're actually going further than the conservative government did in trying to stop any justice from being given to this man. And I can't believe that such a flip-flop is not bigger news in this country because it involves torture. I mean, this pretty much sounds like a repeat of Mar Arar's situation exactly. uh, um, where faulty intelligence led to him being tortured. And he, of course, ended up with an out-of-court settlement. So are you not optimistic that this could potentially be settled out of court? I just want to know what makes you change your mind about torture? So this would fall under Ralph Goodale's portfolio as public safety minister. Yeah. Uh, was there any you know, response or statement released by him or his people? So one of these three men, Al-Maki, he is suing the government right now, and he has taken his own case to court. And it could be a couple of years before we find out what's going on here and we find out how the government is going to respond. But a spokesperson for Goodale has said he was quoted in the Ottawa Citizen as saying that the government is going to conduct a, quote, thoughtful review. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's it's a litigation strategy, Sapria. You know, they have to have a strategy and they have to think it through and make sure that everything lines up. They can't just give this guy the money that they said he should have when they were in opposition. They have to think about it. Thoughtfully now. review your position on torture. Yes. Well, I mean, this is the world that we live in, this post 9-11 era where even torture has to be contemplated, where Stockwell Day, the former public safety minister, the former Ralph Goodale, admitted to a tribunal that Canada did help to give information that resulted in torture, that Canada used information that was obtained by torturing people. Like, we know that this is happening in our country now, and it looks like it's going to take a lot more than a change in government in order to address it, which really scares me. So, Des, a lot of what's been making headlines this past week was the coverage of the Panama Papers, which, of course, was reported by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And it turns out a whole lot of rich people are hiding a lot of their money in offshore accounts. 
Surprise, surprise, surprise. Yes, that does appear to be the case. And actually, in some countries like Iceland and Great Britain, this kind of activity goes all the way to the top of the political chain. And politicians are getting into serious trouble for things that they've been doing in terms of managing their money offshore. So, I mean, I know I can't break this down. I know you probably can't break this down. What are you trying to say? Us together, probably. You know, we're just going to go back and forth. We're going to have all these schemes of how we hide our combined $10 here that we've got in studio. I just think about laying on the beach in Panama whenever I hear about this. Yeah, fair enough. So to actually break this down, we've got Lindsay Teds, who's a professor of economics in the School of Public Administration at the University of Victoria. There are valid reasons to have an offshore account, no? So at what point does it venture into, you know, shady, ethically dubious, and then illegal territory? That's always a tricky part. Of course, there's lots of reasons why you have an offshore account. Um, one of the big reasons that uh, came out, because I don't know if you remember in 2013, there was a big release of information about offshore accounts and Canadians were trapped up in that. And as it turns out, a lot of the offshore accounts were simply people having accounts in other countries where they had a winter residence, so to speak. And of course, there's a great correlation between nice weather and tax havens. (laughs) So those Canadians who are trying to escape winter do tend to find that they are buying houses in Panama or Barbados or the Cayman Islands. And those are all tax havens as well. So there are reasons for having offshore accounts. Another reason uh, is for business purposes. You may have started a business in Canada, but as it turns out, most of your business is overseas. And so it can make more sense to incorporate outside of Canada than within Canada. You know, so there are, you know, there are reasons for having them. Absolutely. But you did say that it can go over the line and that one of the reasons this seems to be in the news is that a lot of the offshore money doesn't seem to be going towards the purposes that you just mentioned. Well, it varies country to country. I think one of the issues in terms of people's frustration in Canada with the Panama Papers is, as it turns out, there's not very many sexy cases coming out of it. Whereas in Europe and in some of the African countries as well as in China, we are seeing individuals who have set up a business structure solely for the purposes of avoiding taxes. And so here's where we have to start thinking about what we sort of call complying with the rules versus complying with the spirit. So we have all of these tax rules. And if you follow the rules in theory, you are not engaging in tax evasion. But we have what is called a general anti-avoidance rule. So it's called GAR. And under this principle of our tax system, any transaction or series of transaction that while follows the letter of the law violates the spirit of the reasons why those bits of the tax section occur, that is in fact tax evasion under our system. So it's a matter of looking at the rationale for the structure that exists overseas and seeing whether or not it adheres to the spirit of our tax act. So these Panama Papers were, of course, brought forth by the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists. And then the CRA, which is the Canada Revenue Agency, came out and said that they'd like to get their hands on this to sort of figure out how much in Canadian terms uh, we're losing out on, on tax dollars. Do we have an idea? Is it upwards of like billions of dollars at this point that we can estimate? Yeah, there's a lot of estimates floating around out there. But as somebody who does a lot of work in tax non-compliance, you have to be really careful with looking at those estimates. So I, I know people are talking about the fact that, you know, we have like $200 billion 
flowing from this country into offshore. But we have to remember two hundred billion with a B. Yeah, but but you have to remember one important thing that all individuals and countries do is, of course, do foreign investment, right? So this outbound investment is going to a variety of different reasons, not purely for tax avoidance or tax evasion, right? You know, we don't want to inhibit commercial activity and business transactions. So it's very hard to disentangle how much of that money is for business reasons versus this idea of people wanting to shelter it for tax purposes. And then, of course, just because somebody is transferring it offshore for tax purposes, we have to think about the opportunity cost, right? So just because somebody can shelter money overseas doesn't mean that they can't shelter it here. So you can't necessarily say by moving it offshore, they're evading income taxes because, in fact, they could have kept it within a Canadian-controlled private corporation here and faced a very low tax rate and it not, in fact, accrue the kinds of tax revenue revenues that is being estimated. So it's a very difficult game to play. And I think we need to be very cautious about how much of a cash cow these kinds of behaviors can be, because it's not as much as what people think or want it to be. All right, Professor, if I want to beat the system here and avoid paying taxes on the millions of dollars I don't actually have, how do I go about to do this? Like, what do I have to do here? Okay, well, I'm not a tax lawyer, and I'm not a tax accountant, and I'm not a banker. Um, Those are the guys that have all of the ins and outs. But for ordinary average Canadians, you know, we do have a lot of vehicles that can be used to reduce your taxes. These include RSPs and TSFAs. If you're a little higher up the income spectrum, it can make sense to incorporate. Once you get up into the fact that you're maybe earning several millions of dollars a year, i.e. you're a CEO, then you can start looking at more complex tax arrangements, such as moving your money offshore. But you're going to pay a significant amount of money in fees and to the tax accountants who are going to set this up for you. So it's not like you can just do this for free. I want to ask you if you think, Lindsay Teds, that it is advantageous in terms of our tax policy in Canada, the more money that you have, the more that you have, the more that you're involved in business transactions, do you think that that gives you an advantage in Canada's tax policy regime? Not a lot of high-income individuals are actually tax-savvy. They instead hire people to be tax-savvy for them. But as soon as you have money and have the ability to hire these people, and of course, the more money you have, the better the advice you can pay for. And there's also this issue of the more resources somebody has, the more access they do seem to have to those who are making the rules. We've seen a lot of cases. We had the Bronfman case come out of the 90s. We had the issue with Paul Martin and the shipping industry. There are, in fact, problems with the fact that people who have resources are better able to influence politicians to create a tax code that they can take advantage of, and that is wrong. And the politicians and our voters should, in fact, not let that happen. We should have a tax system that is fair and transparent 
transparent and achieves the outcomes that we want to have, and it shouldn't be allowed to be exploited by the few. We're seeing politicians in other countries get caught up in this. David Cameron, of course, of the UK, Iceland's now former prime minister who had to step aside in in disgrace, the prime minister of Pakistan as well. Uh, Should we care if if Canadian politicians are are involved in these sorts of of dealings? Well, we should care to the extent that they could potentially benefit from the power that they have by having that transaction, which is really what I think more the Icelandic case was about, was the fact that his wife had these shares within the Icelandic banks, and he was, in fact, negotiating the bailouts for those banks. Whether or not there was any benefit, I doubt it, but it's a conflict of interest, and it should have been reported, and somebody should have been thinking about it. Um, In the case of David Cameron, we're talking about the fact that, you know, he has said some very harsh words about a wealthy tax avoidance, and then we find out that he benefited from something that he says is morally wrong. So we have to be thinking more about the fact that our politicians need to, we need to have disclosure about their business activities, and they need to be thinking very carefully about the influence that they have versus the business ownerships that they also engage in. Because before they're politicians, they are, of course, acting in in the economy. They are business owners, they're wage earners, you know, there are going to be conflicts that come up. But being transparent and ensuring we're disclosing everything, I think, is a very important thing to do. And we need to make sure that our disclosure rules are very above board. Professor Teds, while we have you, there's something else we wanted to ask you about and get your money sense. The Liberal Party unveiled their first budget last month. And there was a really big number involved in that budget in terms of our deficit. And I'm talking about the number $30 billion, which sounds too big for me or anyone else to understand. So can you help us put into perspective what it means that the Liberals are proposing a $30 billion deficit? Um, Well, $30 billion is about 1.5% of our GDP. So our gross domestic product is currently just shy of about $2 trillion a year. So $30 billion is a fairly small portion of our overall economic activity. Sometimes it can be hard to remember historically, but in terms of our historical deficits, you know, our biggest deficit was in 83-84 when it was $78 billion in real terms. When we were recovering from the 2008 economic contractions, the deficits under Stephen Harper ranged between $30 billion to $60 billion. So it's certainly not out of the ordinary, and we've had much bigger deficits. We often hear about people that are anti-deficit compare the national debt to their own household debt. And so they'll say things like, well, you wouldn't sell furniture to pay your mortgage. I, I hear that all the time. Can you explain why that's an incongruous statement at best? We think more about government budgets, and I think of households in the same way, is moreover a business cycle, right? So the better way to compare it is an individual who wants to go into university is going to go into debt for a few years, but afterwards they're going to come out, they're going to get a job eventually. I know know there's issues in there right now, Um, but you will eventually get a job and you will get a job that pays higher. The data is right there supporting that statement. You're going to earn more money after the fact, and that 
additional money can then service the debt that you went into. And it's the same idea when we have a government going into deficit, which is why we start looking at more this issue of debt to GDP ratios. If we're going into debt in order to accrue um, a revenue stream in the future, i.e. we're going to get income in the future to pay off that debt, then we're not as concerned as we are when you're going into debt and they're not being a real plan for there to be growth coming out of that expenditures. We should be much more concerned with debt to GDP than anything else because it's the, G it's the GDP, it's the denominator that tells us whether or not we can service the debt that we're going into. So we are holding debt, we are paying it off. Our debt to GDP ratio has fallen from 65% to about 31% over the course of the last 20 years. Um, it certainly so never sounds like that when we hear politicians, oh. a lot of politicians <laughs> talking about this issue. You're giving us good news. Yeah, no, but we have to remember, again, our economy has been growing a fair amount. Um, you know, while we've had some tough times, we've had a fair stream of, uh, of excellent um, economic growth and the revenues that go along with it. We are in better shape than all of our sister OECD countries. Our debt to GDP ratio federally at least is 31%, whereas in the US it's, you know, in, in the 60, 70%. Japan is 120%. We are leaps and bounds away from where a lot of our sister countries are. At what point in terms of, I guess, a number figure, would you think that at that point the deficit is like too far gone and that's actually a bad deficit? Oh, um, you know, uh, as an economist, I don't do very well with good and bad and should and could. <laughs> Uh, you know, it all depends on the conditions, right? If we compare again to 2008, right? When we had that 2008 economic contraction, that was worldwide. It was fairly sharp. It was intense. And it, we did, in fact, have to do something. And the government went into deficits that were around 55 to $30 billion as, as we came out of it. Again, a, accumulating that debt during an economic contraction is not a bad idea, again, to make sure that we lessen the consequences of the contraction. Where we start getting concerned is when we're going into debt without there being an economic rationale for that kind of fiscal policy. And I have to admit, we're in a little bit of a fine line here. Um, as you've been hearing over the last eight or nine months, the economic figures about GDP have been, uh, you know, they were fairly pessimistic back in the summer and going into the election. But coming out of that election, after they set their platform, the economic growth numbers that started coming out were a lot more optimistic than we had expected. You know, this is one of the things about doing economic predictions is you can only use the information that you have. And things have changed. We've had oil come back up to $40 a barrel. We've had positive economic growth numbers coming out of BC and Ontario, as well as the Yukon now. And so now there is, in fact, a question of whether or not we should be going into a debt at this point in time. But it's also based off of the figures in the budget. Because they are based off of such a pessimistic economic growth numbers, we may, in fact, not be seeing the kinds of deficit being accrued because that $30 billion includes a fairly aggressive contingency reserve and is based off very low economic growth.
Well, that's a glass half full kind of thing. I like that. As the liberal said, the budget might in fact balance itself. And I think we're in fact seeing how that might in fact happen. That's our show for this week. If you want to follow us on Twitter and Facebook and continue the conversation there, as we know you all do, search us at Canada Land Commons in that little search bar. Thank you to the producer of this program, Kevin Sexton. That great music you heard was produced by Nathan Burley. We are at CanadaLandShow.com. Get at us online. Email Desmond at CanadaLandShow.com. And you can tweet me at Sapria Devetti. If you like this show since you like this show, support it. Patreon.com slash CanadaLand. The next episode of Shortcuts will be out on Thursday. And the next episode of Commons will be out next Tuesday. And we're gone. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 